lead pastor here at Kingdom of Grace. We're glad you're with us. Uh, to our guests, welcome. We pray God's blessing on you, whether you're joining us online or here in person. And thank you guys for those that are present with us. Um, thank you for your, your uh, eagerness to be here, despite some of the obstacles that we have to face. But it's good to be together. Good to be before the Lord, most importantly. Good to be before His Word. We are continuing our series in 1 John. We're actually finishing, uh, not this week, but next week. But, uh, but I will be at the end of the book right now. So we're going to be in 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 through 21, to the end of, of chapter 5, the end of this wonderful letter. Have you ever noticed that most of the great stories of our culture feature some sort of struggle, some sort of deep need, and some need to overcome? Sometimes the stories themselves feature how uh, the, the struggles are overcome, and sometimes at great cost. But if you just look at the top most popular works in our culture, uh, you see this. So the top three books by copies sold, uh, excluding the Bible, that's number one. Um, first, Don Quixote. Next, A Tale of Two Cities. Next, Lord of the Rings. One of my favorites. Uh, all three books, right, are about some struggle, some, some effort to overcome something. Top three movies, according to uh, Internet Movie Database. The Shawshank Redemption, The Godfather, actually one and two are together. The Dark Knight. By the way, I'm not necessarily endorsing any of these works, just using them as examples. Um, top three songs, according to Rolling Stone. First, Like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan. I Can't Get No Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. And Imagine by John Lennon. Top three poems according to the Classical Poet Society. Daffodils by William Wordsworth. Death Be Not Proud by John Donne, an amazing poem. Sonnet 18 by Shakespeare, what shall I, I compare thee with? Um, all those are, are talk of some need and some struggle and some overcoming. These great stories parallel really the great stories of history, don't they? The, the sorts of stories of history that we pay attention to are about struggles, are about difficulties and overcoming. Think about our experience this past year, 2020, and now starting in earnest as well in 2021. What we see around us are struggles, needs, tension. And it drives us to this question is, how will we overcome? How will we keep these struggles, these needs, these things from overwhelming us? How will we overcome? And of course, God's Word is all that we need for life and godliness. God answers the deepest questions of our lives. He addresses the deepest needs of our lives through His Word by the power of the Holy Spirit. His Word is living and active. It's not just an academic information gathering exercise to be in His Word. It is to encounter God Himself speaking life through His Word. And we just happen to be in 1 John 5 this week. And I think it's providential because our souls need to hear from the Word of God how we overcome. So let's pray and ask God to speak through His Word today. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for who You are, that You care about us and our particular needs. And in Your providence, You, you arrange things. So many times, Lord, in our sermon series, You have arranged things to speak to our hearts and our needs uh, at particular times. And I thank You for this passage and we ask your Lord to speak to us through your word. I pray as I teach and proclaim your word, 
and that you would use me, Lord, and that I would fade in the background and we would hear you and encounter you and your truth. So help us, help us to have ears to hear, glorify your name, draw the attention to you, God, and make us your holy people to shine to this dark place, we pray in Christ's name, amen. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 and following, it says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that that one, that that one, should, uh, that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come, and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. God's word from 1 John chapter 5. In this section, John uses the word overcome or victory a number of times, four times in this section, I think six or so times in the whole letter. The word overcome and victory are actually the same word in the original language. Is the noun and the verb of overcoming or, or experiencing victory. And this letter, though largely about knowing God, it does talk about the results of knowing God. And one of the key results of knowing God is overcoming. 
And that's what we see here. Those who truly know God overcome. What do they overcome? Well, if we look through this passage and the the whole letter, they overcome their enemies. Their enemies of the world. Their sin and the devil. They overcome these enemies in Jesus. We overcome our enemies in Jesus. That's the core teaching here in this passage. And there are three aspects to how we do this in this passage that I want to dig into. First, we overcome by our faith. Second, we overcome by our prayer. And third, we overcome by God's protection. So let's dig in and look at this. He starts off, verse 4, speaking of overcoming. We overcome, as those born of God, we overcome by uh, the victory that is our faith. Our faith is the victory. Now it's important to understand what John's saying, what he's not saying here. He's not saying that faith in and itself is our victory. Faith is not, is not an object, an endpoint. Faith is a means. It's a, it's a way to get to something, right? So faith itself is not our victory. This is the, the error of, of, the, um, of the faith movement. To say that faith itself saves us or faith itself leads to blessing. No, it doesn't. It's impossible. Faith, faith is meaningless apart from its object. Faith has to focus on something. It has to have an object. And that's what John gets into here. We'll get into that momentarily. Faith is meaningless if it's abstracted. It's like thinking. If I said, what are you thinking about? And you said, oh, not anything really. I'm just thinking. It's like, that's nonsense. You're thinking about something. You're focusing on something. You're exercising your brain. You're using your brain process to focus on an object. Same thing with faith. Faith is always focused on something. You never just have faith. That's ridiculous. There has to be a, an object to your faith. And that's what John's saying here. The victory is our faith because faith connects us with an object. And in that object, through faith, we have victory. And that's what he's going to go on to say. He says, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes? He doesn't stop there, right? Except, in verse 5, except the one who believes, what? That Jesus is the Son of God. There's a concrete object of our faith. It's Jesus. It's the worth and the truth of Jesus that is our victory. Faith connects us with Him. In verse 6, he he goes on and says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but the, by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. These, three, these are the three that testify. So he's, he's saying that this, the object of our faith has actually a concrete testimony to its reality. And so he lists the water and the blood here. And then the Spirit testifying. So these three are in agreement. And of course the question is, what is meant by the water and the blood? What, what is that? Um, well, we have to remember, whenever we have something that we don't understand, maybe off the bat, is just to ask questions of, of the passage. And, and look in the, the letter as a whole. And, and maybe look beyond in other, other parts of Scripture. But if we look just in the letter of First John, we realize that he's addressing false teachers, right? There are false teachers who are who are uh, teaching something false about Jesus. They were in the church and they left. And now they're confusing the church by saying certain things about Jesus. False teaching about him. And, and from what we know, one of the core things is they're denying that Jesus has come in the flesh. That's at the core of this. 
It is likely that this is an early form of Christian Gnosticism, which has plagued the, the church for centuries. And Gnosticism basically at its core separates the physical from the spiritual. And, and what it ends up doing is it either, it either uh, discounts the physical or it sees the physical as evil and dirty. And the spiritual is ultimate. And so anytime that we, we tend to think, you know, that's how it works, we're, we're, we're making our way, drifting into Gnosticism. Gnosticism is against the Bible. God, God creates his creation, both spiritual and physical, put together. And the ultimate example of this is the Son of God, who is God eternal, the Spirit. God himself is spirit. He isn't physical. Yet he dwells in the whole universe. He, he fills every space of the universe and beyond. So he's present in the physical. And yet this God took on flesh. He became a human. He became part of the creation. And so Jesus is the ultimate example of the weaving together of spirit and, and the physical. God and man in union together. And so Gnosticism denies that, of course, because the idea that God, the, the, the perfect, infinite one, the source of all things, would, would become physical is offensive to them. It's contrary to their, their system. And so they deny that Jesus has come in the flesh. They deny that he was real. And there's all sorts of variants of, of Gnosticism. All sorts of ideas that they had. They had ideas that Jesus was a normal human being that God dwelt in for a little bit of time and then and then left maybe on the cross. There's all, all sorts of ideas that are out there. And John's coming against these ideas by saying, no, that's not true. He said it earlier. Of course, uh, denying that Jesus has come in the flesh is how we know the spirits, how we test false spirits. Here he's giving more concrete evidence of the physicality of Jesus by saying the water and the blood testify to Jesus. So what does that mean? Well, I think the best way to understand it, looking at John's teaching, is that the water speaks of his baptism. He was a real man who was baptized by John the Baptist in real water. And he was baptized in the water, we learn as we read about the account, to fulfill all righteousness, to identify with mankind. His baptism, he, he partook of a baptism of repentance. That's what the, John's baptism was about. It was a baptism of repentance. Jesus didn't have anything to repent of. He didn't have to get baptized. But he got baptized to identify with us because we need to repent. He got baptized to fulfill all righteousness in his identification with humanity. So that when it says he came by the water, it's saying he's a man who identified with us in the baptism of repentance. But not just the water, but the blood as well. What, what do you think that means, of course? The, the cross. He identified us with, in baptism he identified with us on the cross by taking our sins on himself and then dying our death on the cross as a human, but as God himself in the flesh, paying for all who would trust in him. And so he shed real blood on that cross. He died a real horrific death. He wasn't a spirit. He wasn't an illusion on the cross. There are teachings that say things like that. He was a real man suffering and dying and atoning for our sins. And so the blood, the water and the blood is a way to summarize his life and death as a man, as the God-man for us. That's what John's saying. He came by water and blood. These testify, these realities, these historic realities, by the way. Jesus of Nazareth is a real man who really lived, who was baptized, 
who died, who suffered and died under Pontius Pilate. Part of our creed, the creed of Christianity. Apostles in Nicene Creed, we say he, the, these historical facts because he's not an idea. He's not an illusion. He's a real person. God in the flesh has really come and lived among us. This is the content of our faith. This is the focus of our faith. This is where the victory is experienced as we put our trust in a real man who was baptized, who died for us on the cross, who raised, was raised from the dead and is ascended to heaven, reigning now and returning. A real human being, God in the flesh. And of course, the Spirit testifies as well. The Spirit is truth, it says. The Spirit is truth. It's interesting as you read through this passage uh, and elsewhere, you see that, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all called the truth. He is, God himself is the ultimate truth. He is truth. He's created everything in truth. He can only be true. And he always testifies to the truth. He is truth. He is the ultimate reality that's determined everything else. In a world where we don't know what truth is, we do know what truth is. God is truth. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And therefore the Spirit must testify to the truth. The Spirit Himself testifies to us that our faith is real. It, it points out the historical re reliability of Jesus. It points out the truth in Scripture about Jesus. It testifies to us, this is truth. That's what Jesus told us in John 15 and 16. When the Helper comes, whom I'll send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. John 16, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. And then John says this in 1 John 2, about us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. What's this anointing? It's the Holy Spirit. This is the profound truth for us as believers that the Spirit of God speaks to us and testifies to the truth. We have this anointing and this ability by the Holy Spirit to know the truth. To look at the truth of Jesus and to see this is truth. And to put our faith in it. That's of the Holy Spirit. That is a profound truth. Through faith, we put our confidence in the truth. And this is our victory. Getting back to our points. The Spirit testifies to us. It's interesting that he says, you have no need that anyone should teach you. You have what you need in the Holy Spirit. Revealed by the Word. Now we have to be careful with this. Because this doesn't mean that everything you think, every idea that comes to your mind, every hunch that you have is perfectly reliable. It's not. Let me say it again. It's not. Your discernment is not pervasive. That's not what this is saying. It's saying the core truth. Jesus coming in the flesh, He's God in the flesh, died for my sins and rose again. That truth, I don't need someone else to teach me on. Because the Spirit Himself, for every genuine believer, has made that known to you. 
And you, by the authority of God himself witnessing to you, you know that truth. That's the truth. That's the ultimate discernment you have. All the other discernment you have is questionable, at least for me. But for a genuine believer, you know that. That's from the Spirit of God. You know the truth. You know that objective fact. And the wonderful news is, that's your victory right there. Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for your sin, reigning and returning. That's your victory. That's how you overcome. The victory is our faith in Jesus. And you might forget all the other truths. The older I get, the more I forget. John Newton said at the end of his life, as he got older, he said, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner. And Christ is a great Savior. If you're a believer, you know that truth. And you will always know that truth. That's at the core. And that's what John's getting at. He goes on in this section to say, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. And he spends some time going through that section, speaking about this testimony that the Father has given us. This testimony about Jesus is the Father's chief testimony to us. So here we have all three persons of the Trinity alongside the objective historical reality testifying to Jesus. And to deny that Jesus has come in the flesh and died for our sins and rose again is to deny the Father, is to call the Father a liar. Because this is the chief testimony the Father wants us to know. He has given us this testimony. He's arranged all things. He has providentially arranged all things. He has given us the Word. He is intent on us knowing this truth. And so the Father Himself testifies to this central truth. He wants us to know this. There's, he, has, he has ordained all these things to point towards this. There's no lack of data on this reality, on this decision about Jesus. History. Reality. The Word of God, His Spirit, creation, His people, all these things point to Jesus as real. This is the Father making sure that you have every reason to believe. And ultimately, there's no reason not to. Every reasonable measure has been taken and given to us that we might believe. We have no excuse. And we have every reason to receive this testimony. And this testimony is, is given to us not because the, the, the father just thinks, I have this obscure fact I want you to know. You know, whatever. It's favorite ice cream. That's kind of, you know, the category here. It's just some sort of obscure fact. No, no, this is the very best truth, the very best testimony, the very best information, the very best truth we could know. Because there's a result from it, right? The object the result of this testimony is our greatest good. Verses 11 through 13. And this is the testimony. So this thing that the Lord, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the water and the blood, history, the Word of God, points to this testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? That you may know that you have eternal life. The Father wants you to, to know this truth so that you can 
have eternal life and know that you have it and live in that and know that you overcome. This is the victory that has overcome our faith. And what is the object of our faith? These things that the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, and the Word are all pointing to. We have eternal life. We're forgiven. We're going to live forever in the Lord. Because these things are true. How do we overcome? By the content of our faith. This rock-solid truth that gives life. Secondly, we overcome by our prayer. Continues in verse 14. The result of knowing that we have eternal life, it says, and this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us and whatever we ask, we know that he, we have the request that we asked of Him. Amazing! This, this knowledge of eternal life that we are sons and daughters of the King, we belong to Him, he comes with a, with a great confidence in prayer. That if we ask according to His will, He hears us. We have this amazing ability. We can ask for things and He hears us. Now, it isn't just anything. It's according to His will. But we have this amazing truth that we get to ask God who is sovereign over all, all-powerful, omnipresent, knows the future, knows the present, knows all the past, exists outside of time, we can ask Him for things, and He answers. We can be confident when we ask. It, it's, it's an amazing truth to get your mind around. I don't know uh, if you've seen Wonder Woman 1984, and I don't want to do a spoiler, so if you want to leave the room for a little bit, I've got to share something. Wonder Woman 1984 in the story. Uh, there's the Dreamstone. Who's seen the movie? Okay, some of you guys. The Dreamstone, right? And the, and the Dreamstone is this thing that, uh, that is like a genie in the bottle. You can get what you wish for. And so the whole movie's built around that. I won't reveal details, but you can imagine what happens when people get their hands on something that will grant their every wish. 1 John 5 says, if you're a believer, you ha can hold in your hand someone who will grant your every wish. One qualifier. It's according to His will. And that's the secret, isn't it? To recognize it needs to be according to His will. It's not just anything. It's according to His will. Uh, that's the secret of contentment and holiness to live in compliance with His will and to ask for the things that are according to His will. As we become more and more like Jesus, we, we pray and ask for those very things. We want His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask for those things. And there's a lot that I could say about that. We could look at all of Scripture and talk about the things that are the Father's will. And that, that's really important, by the way. Find out what pleases the Lord. Find out what He wants you to pray and pray in line with that. But our context actually gives us um, a very specific aspect of this. So John continues in verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask. Right? So now we're asking. And God will give him. Life. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. And so John's application of, the, of this, this amazing promise is to ask for those who belong to Jesus who are committing sin, who are wandering and straying from the Lord. He's saying you should ask. 
You should ask for them. You should pray for them. Genuine believers who are strained. And by the way, every genuine believer strays in some way every day. So this is something we can apply to all of us. And then there are believers that will stray in significant ways as well. And wander away from the Lord. I think all applies. And so John is saying, apply this promise to this. Ask for those that are strained. Ask for them. And God will give them life, he says. That's the promise here. Ask for those that are strained and God will give them life. God will answer that prayer. That is according to God's will. If someone genuinely belongs to the Lord, it is entirely, clearly, absolutely the will of the Lord that they be restored, that they be rescued, that they be renewed, that they receive the life of God once again and live in that life, in abiding with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit amidst God's people. That is God's will for all of His people. And so you can pray that with confidence. He has predetermined that none of His sheep will be lost. In His sovereignty, He said He will lose none of His sheep. And so we can pray confidently for God to restore any genuine believer. And it will be answered we have assurance, and this taps into the mystery of sovereignty and responsibility. Don't let the promise of, of his sovereign determination to rescue all the sheep keep you from praying for his sheep. Your prayers are the means by which he accomplishes his sovereign plan. And we are to pray with confidence. We are to pray for those who are straying. John says later in 3rd John, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Wonderful verse. He means his spiritual children, I think uh, for us, that can, of course as well means our spiritual children, our real children as well. It's a great joy to know our children are walking in the truth. And it is a great sorrow when they're not. One of the saddest things in life is to see someone walk away from the Lord. Anybody. It's even sadder when it's somebody who has known the grace of God, the goodness of salvation, the sweetness of life in Him. Paul says that he, every time someone falls, he burns inside. We ought to feel that way. But this passage comes alongside of us in that point of sorrow to give us promise and confidence that if we ask God for that one, if they belong to the Lord, they will return. He will answer. They will be rescued. They will come to their senses and come back. And so we are to Exercise this amazing promise and privilege by praying for those who are wandering. Praying for those who have wandered significantly. And praying for each one of us that we might not wander during the week. Keep us, O oh Lord. Keep us close to you. Keep us ever walking with you. Keep us away from the deceit of sin. The false promises of the world. The snares of the evil one. Keep us, 
Oh Lord, let us pray that for one another every day. Let us pray for those who are wandering. I think of the story of Alvin York. I don't know if you know who Alvin York was. Alvin grew up in a believing home in Tennessee, rural Tennessee, with, a, with godly parents. Um, his father died when he was relatively young. Alvin had to take over the responsibilities of the household, and perhaps in response to that, Alvin chose drinking and carousing over following Jesus as he, as he had been brought up to do. His mother continued to pray for him, particularly when he went out carousing. One of those times when he was out drinking and carousing, his friend, a close friend, was killed in a bar fight. Alvin had the responsibility, the sad and shocking responsibility of returning his friend's body to his friend's family. That was a turning point for him. He started going to church with his mother. He made a decision to start following Christ once again. And he grew, ended up serving as an elder in his church. You may know the rest of the story of Alvin. He was a godly man, and he was drafted to fight in World War I, was hesitant to take another life, had to sort through the proper role of a soldier, ended up serving in in, uh, France. He received the Congressional Medal of Honor during World War I for single-handedly fighting a battalion of German soldiers with 35 machine guns firing at him. It's, it's verified. It's, it's real. 35 machine guns firing at him. He did not miss a, with a, a single shot with his own guns. He captured 132 German prisoners, saving the lives of the, the remainder of his unit. Not only that, but he left a Christ-centered legacy. He established a high school, a Bible institute, and a godly reputation that is, that is treasured to this day. That's Alvin York the fruit of his mother's prayers. Moms, dads, brothers and sisters, don't give up praying for those that wander. The promise here in 1 John should inspire us to pray for these and to pray for one another. How do we overcome this world? How do we overcome the temptations of sin and the devil that would afflict us and our loved ones? We pray. We overcome by prayer. Finally, we overcome by God's protection. Verse 16 goes on and says, There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. John brings in a caveat for our prayers. We need to understand there's a caveat. As we pray for those who have wandered, there is a sin that leads to death. And you shouldn't pray for that. When that happens, there's a different situation. Well, what is he talking about here? Some have thought, well, this is probably a sin that leads to actual physical death, so suicide. Or maybe it's a sin that's just so serious, it's just bigger than God's grace. The church in the West at times has believed in such sins like murder and adultery. These mortal sins are somehow, they extinguish grace. These are the sins unto death. But I don't think that's what John's talking about. Because the context here, again, is the false teachers and what they're saying about Jesus. And the result of that false teaching, the result of that heresy, the result of wrong belief about Jesus leads to not having eternal life. Leads to remaining in our sin. And so I think we need to understand this this sin that leads to death in light of that. And also we see this backed up elsewhere in Scripture when Jesus teaches a similar thing in Mark 3. He's doing miracles. He's testifying to the gospel of the kingdom. 
and all this testimony is overwhelmingly powerful, and yet they start to say that it's of, of the devil. And so he says in Mark 3 and, and the other synoptics, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. This is a similar sort of thing. Jesus is saying, those that call truth and, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit testifying to that truth as error, who oppose what is obviously true, resolutely, continually, who are set on a course of heresy and opposing the truth, they are guilty of a sin that will never be forgiven. They have locked themselves into a false belief. Therefore, there cannot be forgiveness because forgiveness is only found in true belief. It's only found in Jesus. So in some ways, it's, it's, it, it's an obvious result. And so that's what he's talking about here in John, from what I understand. That someone who is resolute in believing heresy, denying Jesus, Denying the truth. They've, they've not just wandered. They're not just struggling. They're not just tempted. They're ultimately not a genuine believer is what he's saying. They've left the church and they've left the faith. And they're resolute in that. They are committed. Like the false teachers here. Who, who are now teaching false doctrine trying to harm the church. That's what he's saying. That's a different category. These are not believers who are just wandering. These are unbelievers. We have put themselves in a very dangerous place. I don't think we're not to pray. I don't think John's saying don't pray. But you're not praying in light of the promise that God's will will be to restore them. That applies to genuine believers. We know that is true. He's going to go on to say this. The way he finishes here is he speaks of God's protection for the genuine believer. We can have great confidence because of God's protection for the genuine believer. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, he says in verse 18. But he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. God protects us. He says we know uh, that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's part of the background here. There's a reality that's out there. That's part of this context that we need to understand. That the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Does that mean that John's saying the world in every way is under the power of the evil one? He controls the weather. He controls the rocks. He controls the rivers. He controls every human being. Does that, is that what he's saying? No. We've talked about the world already in, in the context of John and elsewhere in Scripture. It means different things. It doesn't mean the created world. This, this is speaking of the world, humanity, Apart from God. The world, the systems of, of humanity, the cultures, the aspects of culture that are not trusting the Lord, not focused on the Lord, not depending on the Lord, that are, that are in rebellion, a part of humanity that's in rebellion, that is the world. And that part of humanity does lie in the power of the evil one. That's the only way that he exercises power ultimately he uses those that are committed to not following the truth to do evil. And so he gets to hold sway over those in the world who refuse to receive and live under the active reign of Jesus. And that's the reality here. 
That's what John's saying is, is, is we overcome, but the, the backdrop here is this world that is under Satan himself, opposing God. That's our background. Now, it's limited and so forth, but it's real. There is darkness out there. There is falsehood. There is evil. We see it. And we see it more and more perhaps these days. There is this reality that the, the devil is at work in the world. And yet, there's a confidence that we have to be protected from these things. To be protected from the enemy. He, he may bring us physical harm. God may allow that. But he cannot touch our security as children of God. We have eternal life. We will live forever. They might kill the body, but the soul will live and then will receive a new body in the new creation. We are protected. We are under His care. No one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. Jesus speaks of this in John 10. My sheep hear My voice and I know them and they follow Me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. Guys, you are safe because God Himself protects you as a believer. No one can snatch you out of His hand. He has rescued you. It's come through the knowledge of Christ and your faith in Christ. It's strengthened by prayer, but ultimately He protects you. You are safe. You will make it through. You will continue with eternal life. Peg and I uh, will often watch football games, NFL games, uh, after they're played. I don't know if you guys do that. We record the games. As a matter of fact, most games we don't watch till later. Sometimes it's hard on Sundays. You've got a 1 o'clock game and just to get home and so forth. And other times we're just doing other things that are a higher priority. So we'll watch the games later, sometimes even the next day. The challenge with that, if you've ever done it, is to avoid finding out the score of the game, right? So, we, so if you ever notice we're not on social media for a day, that might be because we're trying not to look at the scores. Um, but I have to admit that I actually peak probably about half the time. And, uh, and, and Peg doesn't like me to do that. She doesn't like to do that. I, I think I do a pretty good job of not letting on what the result is. But I actually like to peak. I actually enjoy the game more when I know the score, the final score. Because I don't have to be there tense, like, oh no, what's going to happen? Oh no, they're so close, they didn't, they're not going to make it, yes, they're going to make it. I, I, I kind of can sit back, and even if they lost, I can be like, I know it's going to happen. Now when I watch the game, I'm watching just to kind of see, I wonder what happened, you know, what went on to, to lead to this victory or this loss. I actually enjoy the game more. Well, why do I tell that story? Because First John tells you the final score. You are protected. You have eternal life. No one will snatch you out of His hand. Through the reality of your faith, you are safe. And so you can live in this life with a confidence. You can overcome in this world, no matter what the world might throw at you, no matter what may happen. Our world is being shaken. We're promised that this world will be shaken. And there might be things that are good, but not eternal, that fall apart on us. Maybe you felt that way this week. How do we overcome? We overcome in Jesus. 
We overcome in the reality of our faith. We overcome through the means of prayer. We overcome because He protects us. Let's just take a minute right now. Dan, if you could put the last slide up. Just to consider, in light of God's Word, how to respond. Take a minute to pray. There are three possible ways, among many. Is there a promise about God to receive here in this passage? Is there a sin to turn from? Maybe your sin is just that you've been putting your trust elsewhere. And you don't feel like you're overcoming, you're overwhelmed. Is there an action to do to help others? The text tells us pretty clearly to pray for others. Maybe that's something you could do. But there might be others. Let's just take a minute right now. And as the band comes up uh, and we transition to communion, just to maybe bow your head, close your eyes, whatever helps you pray and consider these things before the Lord, then, then we'll transition to communion.